Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Which has done the most to shape the world's history, humans or germs? Did Homo sapiens get the better of the Neanderthals because of superior brain power, as we've been told so often, or because of resistance to some infectious disease? Are germs part of the story behind the fall of Rome and the rise of Islam? Well, Jonathan Kennedy thinks the more you look at germs, the more important they seem. He teaches politics and global health at Queen Mary University, London, and he has a PhD in sociology from Cambridge. So welcome to you. Thank you. Good morning, Owen. Good morning. And, well, you know, Victorians wrote about the great men and Marx wrote about dialectical materialism, but you think germs explain a lot of history. Yeah, exactly. I think we can even take a a step backwards and if we go to the the 1600s and Delft in, in the Netherlands, there was a Dutch haberdasher who developed lenses to start to look at the cloth that he was buying and selling. And after a while, he obviously got restless and began to to look at the natural world. And he was the first person to really gaze upon the world of, of microbes. And this is a world that's, a, on the one hand, so tiny, we can't see it with our eyes, but also so vast that num- the numbers are just absolutely, absolutely mind-blowing. And I I like to think of it as, as you know, probably Anthony van Leeuwenhoek was has come the closest to, to anyone in the world, really, to stepping through the looking glass or falling down a rabbit hole and waking up in a strange world of, of fantastical creatures. And so a couple of years ago, myself, as a non-scientist, as someone with a background in, in the social sciences and an interest in history, started to read a bit about viruses and bacteria. And it really blew my mind. And there's a few a few kind of little snippets of research that I can I can discuss that really capture this 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 wonderment and one is the fact that I mean just the numbers are mind blowing if we were to take all the bacteria on our planet and weigh them their mass would be over 1000 times that of all the humans viruses which are even even smaller if you added all of the viruses on our planet end to end they would reach for 100 million light years but it's not just the numbers of microbes that are that are really hard to get one's one's head around. It's also the impact that they've had on on us, on on humans, in part as as individuals. And so, certainly, one of the studies that really got me thinking about this was the the studies that look at the impact of retroviruses on our evolution. So, retroviruses are a special kind of virus that reproduce by inserting their DNA into our human genome. If they manage to infect our reproductive cells, so either our eggs or our sperm cells, then these genes, this DNA, this virus DNA is passed on from generation to generation. So we've managed to acquire a number of 
capabilities or functions that we think of as being really fundamental, um, fundamentally human from these kind of virus infections. And it sounds like it can't possibly be true, but even functions like memory formation or the ability to, to give birth, these are in large part due to viral infections that happened hundreds of millions of, of years ago. You, you say there that memory formation, for example, may have been partly a, a, you know, a consequence of, of, of being infected with bacteria or viruses. But I guess, I guess that all that is saying is that germs have played a big role in human evolution, right? Which, I mean, tell us about that. How big a role have they played in human evolution? Well, absolutely critical, really, if we think that all complex life evolved from single-celled organisms that were either bacteria or pretty much like, like bacteria. And the first complex cells emerged when two of these single cells came together and started living in a symbiotic union, which is why, for example, my, mitochondrial DNA is different to the DNA in our in our cell nucleus. But but as I was as I was saying, eight percent of our, our DNA comes from these retrovirus in infections and they allow us to perform they've allowed us to develop the ability to perform all sorts of functions that we think of as fundamentally human. But even even today the bacteria in our body are influencing things like our, our our moods, which kind of fundamentally questions the nature of what it is to be to be human. And I guess this was the starting point for my for my book and for my thesis really. The idea that if microbes have played such a a vital role in our individual bodies, what role do they play when we look at aggregations of bodies, when we look at society, when we look at the body politic, the body social and the body economic. Yeah, because that seems to be different, doesn't it? Because, I mean, you know, it's one thing to say, I mean, I think you've got a figure in the book that germs basically account for 30% of the genetic mutations that make the difference between chimps and us. When we think about this, it fundamentally alters the way that we understand evolution. If we think of certainly the Darwinian idea of evolution by natural selection, there's this idea that you have this this big struggle between various species and within various species and the biggest, the strongest, the smartest survive. And this is the, the driving force of, of history. Nature is is red in tooth and claw, as Alfred Lord Tennyson said. And there's this kind of brutal competition going on between species and within species. So it's it's kind of it's very similar. And actually, it's really interesting because you know, kind of the economics of Adam Smith had a, had a big influence on on Charles Darwin, and we can almost see that this theory of evolution is is basically you know kind of classical economics as applied to the to the natural world but when we when we actually look at the the nature of evolution um, and when scientists have done this over the last few few decades we see that it's not it's not so simple and where there is competition often often it's not you know within species and it's not competition with kind of apex predators the biggest driver of evolution is infectious diseases therefore one of the biggest factors that allows people to survive and pass on their their genes is the ability to to survive infectious diseases and and pandemics and so yeah as we as we say i think there was a study 
a while ago that showed something like that about a third of of cells in the body were selected for because of because of viral infections. Exactly. So, so it seems to me, as you as you sort of touched on, we've got two things going on here. There's the the effect of infectious disease on individuals, and then if you aggregate it, it's a different story because then the idea that humans have put on when writing history, basically, that humans are at the centre of that, and whether it's great men or class clashes or whatever sort of history you prefer, all of that slightly takes a back seat to your version of history, which is that infectious diseases have driven a lot of events that historians hitherto have basically ascribed to human agency. Yeah, no, exactly. I think, you know, the way that most people view history and most people view the interaction between humans and the the natural world is is kind of similar to the way that we envisaged it back in the days of the Old Testament. You know, this idea that in Genesis, God created humans in his own image and then gave us dominion over the over the natural world. But the more we the more we learn about the natural world, we we realize that it's not some kind of stage where either great men and women or classes play out their roles. We need to conceptualize the the world, the natural world as a system. And humans are a relatively small part of, of this system. And microbes and infectious diseases in particular play an enormous, enormous role. And as you said in the introduction, in everything from the extinction of Neanderthals 50,000 years ago to the emergence of Christianity in the in the first millennium or the transition from feudalism to capitalism a thousand years later. Yeah, well, we'll talk through some of those precise examples because they're very, very interesting. But just before we go through some of these historical events, to what extent has you know, recent capabilities to research DNA helped you understand all this? It's absolutely revolutionised the way that we understand prehistoric pandemics and the role of infectious diseases in in prehistory. Up until about 10 years ago, we knew very, very little about what was going on with regards to the infectious diseases, um, anything more than about two and a half thousand thousand years ago when the ancient Greeks start, first started writing, writing history. But the massive advances in the ability to both extract and analyze DNA from really ancient skeletons has transformed our understanding of the the, the past in 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 general and there's a variety of, of of examples i could i could give i think you know one of the really interesting ones is if we look at western sweden there's a tomb with about 70 70 bodies dating to 5000 years ago and Back, back then, this would have been a really kind of sparsely populated part of part of northern Europe. And so having so many people die around the same time is really extraordinary. And a couple of years ago, scientists looked at the genetic material they'd extracted from the dental pulp of a couple of these skeletons. And they they realized that there wasn't just human DNA there. There was also the DNA of the microbes that were swimming around in their blood at the time of their death. And they managed to identify the oldest known specimen of Yersinia pestis, so the bacteria that causes plague. And this is fascinating 
in and of itself, right, that we can pretty accurately diagnose what people died of 5,000 years ago. But I think what's really fascinating is when we start to piece this particular bit of evidence together with other other clues um, from the Neolithic age. And we can, we can, for example, look at the fact that there are other slightly later examples of Yersinia pestis that have been found more or less across the whole of the whole of Eurasia, or at least as far as the Altai Mountains in Siberia. We also know in Europe at the time that the population it collapsed about five thousand years ago. Um, since the adoption of, of farming, it had been increasing and increasing, and then it fell by about fifty or or sixty sixty percent. And so, if we put these two bits of information together, it certainly indicates that there was some kind of Neolithic Black Death around this time, and it decimated the farming communities of Europe, including actually the people who built built Stonehenge, and then. We also have a pretty good idea from studies of ancient DNA what happened afterwards. There appears to have been a massive migration of people from basically the Western Eurasian steppe, somewhere around around the north of the of the Black Sea. A group of of a relatively small group of nomadic shepherds migrated westwards. Um, reaching reaching the the British Isles and they brought both their genetic material with them but also they appear to be the origins of Indo-European languages even today these so-called western steppe herders account for something like 40% of the genetic material for people who who who, who originate from northern Europe there's lots of sort of fascinating things about this but i mean the bit that seems so interesting to me is that I can imagine that people writing about that movement of uh, f- from north of the Black Sea into into Europe and the impact it's made would normally have assumed it was military conquest or maybe trade routes and all these sort of other explanations people have for the movement of people but you've you've basically just given a you know really convincing argument that in fact it was disease. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty hard to understand um, what happened otherwise, because you you had a a well established farming community. The European continent was was pretty densely populated, and it's really hard to imagine otherwise how you would how you would have such a dramatic turnover in population in such a a short period of time. In the British Isles, you have about prior to about four and a half thousand years ago. Genetic identity of the the population is predominantly these these early European farmers who came from what's now what's now Turkey, and then you have a more or less total replacement of population within a hundred years or so. And so it's really hard to understand what happened without the impact of infectious diseases. And I think this is a this is a common thread throughout Pathogenesis, the book, the fact that often there's these really miraculous events that happen in history and they're kind of hard to explain unless you refer to the role of, of infectious diseases. So, so let's go through in a bit more detail the example we, we, we've both mentioned once, the, the Homo sapiens and Neanderthal, uh, which I, I think I'm right in saying that you know, the traditional account is that Homo sapiens basically outthought the Neanderthals. But why is infectious disease part of that story? And, and how did it happen? I mean, what, what, what can you tell us about what actually happened? Certainly, the dominant explanation is that, that Homo sapiens were, 
were more intelligent and that we were basically, because of this, able to outcompete Neanderthals. But there's been a variety of recent research that has demonstrated that Neanderthals were were capable of all sorts of sophisticated behaviours. And we've got to the point now where, you know, the gap between Homo sapiens on the one hand and Neanderthals on the on the other in terms of behavior is is absolutely absolutely tiny. For example, Neanderthals were or seem to have been able to sail between islands in the in the eastern Mediterranean. They certainly knew how to how to use fire. They painted kind of basic images onto cave walls. They also appear to have used various medicinal plants to to treat maladies. So this explanation that Homo sapiens, which of course means wise, wise man or wise humans, were were more intelligent than Neanderthals, who, like certainly in the a hundred years ago, there were people who were were calling Neanderthals Homo stupidus. This this kind of Homo sapiens Homo stupidus dichotomy is no longer no longer viable. So this raises the question: what actually what actually happened? We should remember that Neanderthals were were also bigger stronger and heavier than homo sapiens so this adds to the adds to the mystery and the most convincing explanation is is infectious diseases so you know for at least 500,000 years homo sapiens were living in africa and neanderthals were living in western eurasia they occupied a pretty pretty large region all the way from Kind of Gibraltar in the in the west to the Altai Mountains again in in Siberia. We were evolving in different parts of the world with different climates and also different disease environments. And certainly, there's no evidence that we interacted for hundreds of thousands of of years. But then, maybe about 150,000 or 120,000 years ago, we have evidence that humans began to interact with Neanderthals. We were pushing out of Africa into the Levant and Neanderthals were, were pushing down from, from Western, Western Eurasia. And we know, that, we know that the two species of human met because we humans, at least people whose ancestors grew up in, in Europe, in Asia or Native Americans have somewhere between two and 4% Neanderthal DNA. And this this comes from these liaisons that occurred 100,000, 60,000 years ago. And I think the, the really important thing to remember is that these genes that we've inherited from Neanderthals, they're not random. We retained certain, certain gene variants because they gave us an advantage as we pushed out of tropical Africa and into more temperate Eurasia, where there was a different disease environment. And we also have to think what would happen when we first met. Clearly, species had sex and reproduced, but also we would have exchanged infectious diseases that were probably pretty, had a pretty kind of um, insignificant impact on on the species that were carrying them because they'd evolved to to deal with them. But the other species meeting these these pathogens for the first time would have been absolutely, absolutely, absolutely devastated. So we see that for almost 100,000 years, um, the eastern Mediterranean region seems to have been a almost like a no-go area for 
Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. They would try to push push out of their their regions into the eastern Mediterranean, and then it seems like they would they would reproduce sometimes, but they would also get sick and and and, and die. But I mean, presumably, that you know, the DNA evidence shows that they had sex and they reproduced. But the disease could have been not necessarily sexually transmitted. It could have been, you know, through uh, aerosol, you know, or, or some other uh, means of transmission. No, no, exactly. And I think what's really fascinating is is scientists have looked at the genes that we've retained, and it seems to be that we were encountering various. Neanderthal viruses that are pretty pretty similar to modern flu and modern HIV HIV AIDS. I guess the kind of um, to fast forward to 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 what happened was that because Homo sapiens had evolved in tropical Africa, this was a part of the world that gets much more of the sun's energy. So there's more vegetation, there's more animal life, and there's more microbes. So we would have carried more and more deadly pathogens as we as we pushed out. So it would have taken the Neanderthals longer to overcome our diseases. So we were able to push out of, of Africa without getting sick, whereas the Neanderthals were still still getting horribly, horribly sick. And this provided us with a massive advantage in, in this struggle for existence. Gosh, well, I mean, that, that has a parallel with today, because, I mean, often you know, it's quite a controversial topic, but illnesses such as Ebola and I think even HIV, didn't people say that originated in in Africa, so you're you're saying that that happened way back as well. Yeah, yeah, and it makes it makes perfect sense from a like. There's a very clear epidemiological pattern that the closer one gets to the equator, the more microbes and the more pathogens there there, there tend to be. I see. Yeah. So there's there's a, there's a just a hard fact about where people have had to become most resistant to to disease. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So so okay. Well, that deals with that fascinating story and then as you go through your book you describe other moments where germs have an infectious disease have played a big role can you can you talk us through some of these other bodies that have been found because you talk about that group in was it northern sweden but you also talk about cheddar man and otzi the iceman what did they what did they tell us even before we start talking about infectious diseases there's some really delicious ironies when we start looking at ancient ancient DNA. And first of all, you mentioned Cheddar Man, and it's it's a particular interest of mine because I, I grew up in Somerset and um, still today when I go to my parents, one of my favourite bike rides is to go across the levels and up Cheddar, Cheddar Gorge. But about 100, 100 odd years ago, 120 years ago, some people who were digging a drainage trench in a in a cave in Cheddar Gorge found Cheddar Man. And Cheddar Man is the oldest, almost complete skeleton ever to be found in the in the British Isles. Um, so about 9,000 years old. Therefore, he's he's known to be the, the first the first Briton. And again, a couple of years ago, researchers from the the Natural History Museum managed to extract some DNA and to work out what Cheddar Man would have looked like. And I think to, to most people's surprise, he had really quite quite dark skin, dark hair, and blue blue eyes. So I think particularly at a time when there was all this discussion about the problems that supposedly immigrants were causing in the UK and there were politicians on the right who were who were kind of 
advocating for the rights of indigenous Britons. I think it was kind of a, a nice irony that that the first Briton was so kind of different physically from what we think of as a as an English as an English rose. And um, Cheddar Man would have been a hunter hunter gatherer. His descendants disappeared about six thousand years ago. At the same time as we see a new influx of, of people who would have been kind of olive skinned, brown eyed, who moved across Europe from Anatolia, so modern day Turkey, and brought farming with them. And I think there's a pretty good argument for the fact that they they would have been aided in their in their journey by infectious diseases infectious diseases really kind of multiplied and we entered the I guess the kind of the modern age of infectious diseases when humans transitioned from hunting and gathering to to farming because for the first time humans were living cheek by jowl not just with other humans but also with animals of various types so both the animals that they domesticated but also a variety of parasites that lived on the grain that they gathered and and stored. And so this provided the perfect environment for pathogens to jump from one species to another. And then living in in kind of densely populated settlements provided many more opportunities for these pathogens to be transmitted from person to person, either either by infected water or or through the through the air and so this provided farming populations with a with a kind of unwitting secret weapon as they as they moved through through Europe and through other parts of the parts of Eurasia that kind of you know wiped out the pre-existing hunter gathering populations and cleared the way for for this this farming farming population and so these first farmers would have would have been very similar to Utsi the Iceman, the 5,000, 6,000 year old mummified remains of which were found in the Alps on the Italian-Austrian border. In those two cases then, you're sort of speculating as to what the history might have been. You're not finding evidence or evidence hasn't been found in those skeletons to indicate rather like that northern Swedish group, you know, that you could actually diagnose something. No, so nothing in, in Cheddar Man, but... Otzi, the the Iceman, he he was very clear, very clearly a farmer, and um, there's there's a few clues to that. One, he was one he was wearing goatskin and sheepskin clothes and and shoes, but he was also had parasites, lots of parasites in his gut. He was infected by by lice, and the fact that he he had a kind of many more parasites living on and in in him suggests that he he came from a a population that had gone through through the, the agricultural revolution. So this may be the subject of another book, I guess, but I'll ask you the question just to see if, <laughs> if you know anything about it. But uh, if, you, if you say that humans, when they gathered in villages and towns and cities, uh, were more prone to disease, so basically infectious disease became a bigger factor in human development, uh, ca- can you tell parallel stories about animals i mean are there animals that you know flocks and herds and that sort of thing and and therefore their development is affected by infectious disease no no definitely and i think you know this is a big part of the story of world history the fact that there were a large array of animals in eurasia that lived in enormous herds so if we think of the kind of 
wild pre-agricultural revolution, cows and horses, and they lived in the in the wild in vast herds, and this provided opportunities for infectious diseases to emerge and to to kind of become endemic in these in these populations. And this is why, for example, Europeans or the Spanish conquistadors in particular carried a much bigger disease load when they crossed the Atlantic and they started interacting with with Native Americans because, you know, kind of the Inca certainly and the Aztecs, the Mexica were were pretty advanced civilizations, but in the Americas you didn't have these this vast array of um, herd animals that allowed a large number of pathogens to pass from from animals to humans. The only only kind of real herd animals that you have in the Americas are are llamas and alpacas, and even they live in pretty small herds in the in the wild. Well, you, you've taken our story far forward, so let's just deal with that period, but we'll have to go back to ancient Greece and things in a minute. But when you're talking about, you know, the impact that people had in, in the Americas, in Australia, on indigenous populations, which was very, very marked, talk us through, first of all, how big that impact was, because that, that, that you know, that is a, a modern example of what you're talking about. Yeah, so I think the classic explanation and the one that I engage with and critique a little bit in the book is that of Jared Diamond and guns, germs and steel. And so Diamond argues that um, basically Europeans managed to conquer other parts of the, the world because we had better technology, but also we were helped along by by our germs. And I I think kind of when you actually read Diamond's Diamond's book, he he says that the the technological advantages that Europeans had in the Americas were so big that we we would have conquered the the continent anyway. But I think we have to realize that actually it's really hard to conquer a foreign country that doesn't want you there or a foreign community that doesn't want you there. It's it's really hard to cross an ocean um, and and go and kind of impose yourself upon another society. And we've seen that, you know, in the last 20 years with what's happened in Afghanistan, the Americans and their allies had pretty modest aims to to kind of change the regime. And they threw enormous amounts of resources at the problem as they saw it, you know, over 100,000 troops at the height, um, trillions of dollars spent, the kind of most advanced arms ever used in, 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 in warfare against you know, what was essentially a pretty ragtag group of religiously infused insurgents. And, you know, they, they, they were no better off after 20 years than they were at the at the beginning. And so when we think about this, it really shows us how astounding the the Spanish conquest of the Americas was. So, you know, you get kind of Hernan Cortes in in the early 1520s going over to Mesoamerica um, and conquering this vast civilization, um, Tenochtitlan was the was the capital, and it was four times as as big as the biggest city in in Spain at the time, Seville. To give you an idea of how much more advanced it was than Spain, you know the the only reason that this was possible, that the only reason that Cortes was able to conquer this vast empire with about a thousand men was because the, the the Mexico, the Aztec were absolutely devastated by the pathogens that that Cortes and his men 
brought across. So first of all, you see smallpox devastating the population. And then after that, you have pandemic after pandemic that, that you know, killed enormous numbers of Native Americans, but didn't touch the the Europeans. And, you know, there's been there's been some 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 estimates. The best estimate for how many people died is is something like 55 million people. So the population dropped from about 60 million at the beginning of the 16th century to 6 million at the end. So this is about a 90% fall in the population. And it was so big that um, it, it led to the world's average temperatures dropping and it contributed to the coldest years of the the little ice age when of course the the Thames froze over and and and, and things like this. And then the the conquest of of the Inca was even more remarkable ten years later when Francisco Pizarro went to this this kind of this vast South American empire with 168 men and managed to manage to conquer it. And you know historically people have explained it as being the superiority of Europeans, um, maybe their technology, maybe their their gods, but you know it's absolutely p- preposterous that this could have happened without infectious infectious diseases. And right. So your, your your difference with Jared Diamond is more one of emphasis. You know the the extent of the role of technology and the extent of the role of infectious diseases. Well, I guess whereas Diamond would say guns, germs, and steel, I'd probably say germs, germs, germs. So that. Okay, thrown in as well, probably. Okay, but uh, then it's striking that which way this goes. So you're talking about the Europeans going to the Americas and infecting people who were living there. And earlier, you had people coming from Africa and affecting the Neanderthals. Now, I mean, presumably, it could have worked the other way. You know, it could have been that the Europeans were susceptible to some disease that the Americans were resist, you know, had resistance to? Or, or do you have explanations as to why it tends to go in, in, in a particular direction? The, the main reason is just that there were, by chance, more species of, of animals in Eurasia that lived together in, in big herds and created opportunities for infectious diseases to, to emerge and to become endemic in those species. So we're thinking of cows and sheep and goats and horses. And then when these animals were domesticated, these pathogens jumped over from 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 animals to, to humans. And at first they would have been devastating for the early farmers, but with time, our immune systems developed defenses and these diseases became endemic in, in our population as well. Whereas you also saw agricultural revolutions in the Americas, but you don't have so many wild animals that were that were domesticated and certainly not um, herd animals. So I mean, I, yeah, I guess what's convincing about that is that it happened in Canada, it happened in Australia, it happened in, you know, North America, uh, South America. So that, yeah, there were quite a few places where a similar process happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Again, this was an unwitting secret weapon that the that the Europeans carried with them. But I think it's also interesting to think about the psychological impact that this would have ha- had on the Native Americans, because of course this was centuries before germ theory, and this must have just seemed like the conquering population had better better gods. And so I think this can maybe explain the fervor with which the American populations adopted Christianity and the continued 
kind of impact of the Catholic Church in this region. So I just want to, before we spool back to the uh, ancient Greeks, I just want to ask you about COVID and whether the, you know, let, let's just for argument's sake say that it, it, this didn't come from the lab in, in Wuhan, which many people think it did, uh, but actually came from a wet market uh, in, in Wuhan and somehow there was a transmission from animals to humans in, in Wuhan and then, it's, then COVID spread around the world. Would that be a sort of reverse process where, if you like, less developed culture that had this very close contact in these wet markets compared to Europeans who are, are now sort of far removed from nature? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be careful of, of thinking about more and and less less developed. But certainly, we're at the moment where I think we like to think that we have we've conquered infectious diseases and that vaccines and antibiotics have have kind of helped make make kind of pandemics a, a thing of the past, and that maybe COVID was a was an aberration. But I think actually, you know, when we take a step back you see that we're living in a new golden age of, of, of microbes, basically, because the unprecedented population growth we've had in the last, in the last century, the incredible density of population, um, the encroachment on animal habitats, the increased um, intensity of, of farming, um, not to mention kind of the speed at which we can now travel around the world. This has, this has created kind of, perfect perfect conditions for new pathogens to to um not just emerge but also spread so it's it's kind of like a souped up version of what happened during the adoption of agriculture really yeah but what what i'm wondering is whether in in let's say in the united states today western europe you know growing vegetarianism uh people living in cities but with very much pre-packaged food and not getting out into nature at all and not seeing you know rarely even visiting the countryside in many cases would that would that make those people actually more susceptible to disease so it's almost coming out the other end of it yeah no i guess there's some i guess there's some truth in truth in that yeah but 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 i mean i guess it goes it goes two ways so part of the you know on the one hand they're removed from interactions with animals but living in a city and you know, traveling around by by tube and sitting in crowded offices can also also expose you to pathogens. So I guess it goes I guess it goes both ways, but certainly there's more opportunities for for pathogens to jump species in 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 in, in other parts of the the world. Yeah, in places where that contact is greater. Well, okay. Uh, and now, as advertised, uh, the ancient Greeks. Now, <laughs> what, what what seems interesting about that is that you you know previously were telling the story from DNA evidence and population movements and so on. But when it's, when you get onto the ancient Greeks, you start getting other evidence, written evidence that can back up some of your claims, as it were, isn't it? And and ideas about what actually happened in in various moments of history. I think it's really important that. You know, if we look at um, Greek literary sources, we see that epidemics, pandemics play a really, really important, important role, whether it's um, Homer's Iliad or, or Thucydides, the history of the, the Peloponnese War, or even Sophocles, Oedipus Rex. Infectious disease outbreaks play a really, really important, important role. And um, 
So let's focus on Thucydides and the, the history of the Peloponnesian War. This is one of the first historical accounts. And Thucydides argues that a outbreak of what he calls plague, which was possibly smallpox, which occurred in in Athens at the beginning of the Peloponnesian War, played a really, really important role in the outcome of the of the conflict. So it's it not just killed a third of the population of Athens, it also killed Pericles, the, the great statesman and general. And he says nothing did so much as to weaken the Athenians. And of course, it was another two decades until they they lost to Sparta, but this really set set Athens on the path to to defeat. And this had really kind of a profound impact on on history. If we think of Athens in the middle of the fifth century BCE, this was you know a, a time of cultural, political, intellectual flourishing that has few parallels in history. It was the it was the time of Herodotus and Thucydides. It was the time of Sophocles the time of Socrates and Hippocrates and Pericles. It was it was the age when Athenians went to the Pnyx, the hill by the Acropolis, and every every week they would discuss the the really important issues of the day and vote on them. It was the time in ancient Greek civilization when the the Parthenon was was built, this this that still looms over the over the city. And so the loss in the in the Peloponnesian War to, to Sparta, which was a militaristic, oligarchic city state, really kind of ended this 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 flourishing almost as soon as it had had started. And you know, kind of uh, counterfactuals or what ifs in history are, are often a little bit of a fool's errand. But we can we can start to wonder what might have happened if if the plague of Athens hadn't come along and handed victory to the Spartans. Yeah. And then another moment where disease played a very big role was in, in the medieval period, we're spooling forward now, and the plague and the Black Death and all that. Yeah, so I think we all know that the, the Black Death was, was catastrophic. This was caused again by Yersinia pestis, but I think quite often we don't appreciate how devastating it was and also how big an impact it had on, on society. So, you know, the Black Death killed over half, maybe... 60% of the population of of Europe and you know this is bad enough but plague came back again and again over the next two centuries so there was the the second plague in in 1361 that killed perhaps 30% of the population and the the english population didn't recover until the until the 1700s and and this demographic shock this collapse in population had an enormous impact on on society, obviously the the Black Death um, in the middle of the the 14th century occurred during the the High Middle Ages when Western Europe was dominated by a feudal a feudal system and a feudal system tends towards stagnation because there's no real motivation for anyone to maximize what they they produce to adopt kind of technology for the feudal lords because it's an unstable situation where everyone has private armies. You want to spend all the surplus resources you have on either building castles or or strengthening your army or shoring up support. Because if you don't do that, if you go and spend all your money on windmills to improve agricultural output, someone else will just come along with their army and take your, take your land. And 
Similarly for peasants, for the serfs at the bottom of the the system, their main priority was not to starve. So that's why you have this strip system where where the serfs would grow different um, crops in different parts of their their lord's estate, because that would minimise the risk that um, adverse weather or disease or wild animals would destroy their whole crop and lead to lead to disaster. So this is why you see kind of very little improvement in living conditions from from the Roman period. But this all changes with the the Black Death because all of a sudden the serfs see that land is is plentiful. There's 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 half the number of serfs that there were a couple of years before. And they realize that their labor is scarce and in demand. And this kind of leads to a, a struggle that plays out over over decades um, that leads to the, or that explodes into the open during the 1381 Peasants, peasants Revolt. And the feudal lords are, are really trying hard to maintain the feudal system because it works for them, but eventually they 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 have to give in. They, they can't hold back the, the kind of demographic tide any, any longer. And so about 100 years after the Black Death, basically you have kind of all the serfs in the in England have been have been freed have have won their freedom, and eventually you see the emergence of a kind of agricultural capitalism. So the lords kind of maintain control of their land, but they rent it out at market rates to the most entrepreneurial of the former the former serfs, and this means that the vast majority of the rural population no longer have access to to their land, but those entrepreneurial yeoman yeoman farmers, this this new commercial commercial class, really start to adopt technology. So they bring in draft animals and plows, and they specialize in producing particular crops that are suited to the areas in which they they live. And you see this this massive boom in agricultural output that can not just feed the growing cities. But also food becomes so cheap in, in England that, that workers have money for the first time to spend on things like, like textiles and sugar and tobacco. So, so this, this transformation in the English countryside also drives um, the emergence of industrialization and colonialism. One, one thing you said there just prompted a question that uh, occurs to me, which is, I think there's an assumption in 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 evolution, maybe just in sort of popular science, but nonetheless, there's this idea that as the species, the human species has evolved, it's got cleverer and it's got, you know, maybe fitter and more agile and, you know, it's got more refined and better in some way. But when you describe these mass diseases, they're, they're, they're not distinguishing between people who have got particularly good capabilities, they're, they're, they're pretty random, right? And it can be Pericles can get it just as much as the next person. So there isn't, yeah, you, what, what you're suggesting is that evolution isn't quite uh, producing the, it's not selection of the fittest and the best, it's just selection of the most disease resistant. Exactly, yeah. So we see that, you know, some of the gene variants that allow people to survive massive pandemics, um, are ones that, that that kind of don't actually confer greater strength or anything like that. In in many ways, um, or in many instances, it's often th- these genes actually 
often kind of have negative consequences on the functioning of the body, the body more generally. So um, we have this weird situation where, you know, the immune system is better because it can withstand the disease, but actually, actually it creates other problems. And I guess the classic example for, for this is something like sickle cell disease, right? So, sorry, sickle cell anemia, which, you know, changes the shape of the red blood cells and provides people who have, who who, who, whose ancestors lived in malarial areas with a evolutionary advantage because the plasmodium can't um, reproduce in their in their bodies, but it also creates other massive health complications that that lead to kind of really really painful um, problems. I want to ask about the future uh, now, and one area that would be interesting to think about is biological weapons because. You know what you've described is the power of infectious disease, but also the, the slightly random nature of of uh, who gets affected by it, which is, I guess, what we we've seen with COVID. I mean, you know, who knows whether it was a a biological weapon in the making or not? But uh, you know, if if it was, then it, it hasn't been particularly effective because it, it's affected the uh, yeah everyone rather randomly. It, it it and it's not very precise. No, no, exactly, and I think there's a few. There's a few points um, to, to bring up about about this issue. I think, first of all, something that's really striking is that, you know, certainly for the first year until effective and safe vaccines were developed, we were, we were using the same kind of policies to deal with the spread of infectious diseases as we were using hundreds of years ago to deal with the spread of the plague. So, you know, kind of uh, lockdowns and... Um, zero COVID policies were were pretty similar to the the kind of quarantines that were used by by Venice in the in the 1400s even or the cordon sanitaires that were used by the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the in the 1700s um so we are we are as a species still you know particularly and worryingly vulnerable to infectious diseases which is what what makes kind of the use of viruses as a biological weapon so so concerning but as you as you point out the the one issue for that is that they you know kind of covid has been so undiscriminating that it's it's caused you know kind of death and devastation across the across the world i guess the the way around that would to be to develop both a a kind of biological biological weapon but also a vaccine, so you can vaccinate your own population. But uh, yeah, pretty worrying stuff. Yeah, we'll talk. Let's talk about vaccines then, because uh, if you're basically saying, as you are, that infectious disease has been a major driver of historical events, then can we say we're in for a more stable period of historical events? Because uh, it, it seems that we've got the ingenuity now to develop vaccines. And you know, COVID would have had a far bigger impact if it hadn't been for the vaccines. Uh, and we, you know, we have a largely stable situation. Of course, a lot of people have suffered and died. But in in terms of moving history, it hasn't really, which it, it might have done without the vaccines. Yeah, I think you know we'll we'll have to wait and see what impact COVID nineteen has had on on history. I mean, I think if we look at instances from the past, we see that you know, kind of infectious disease outbreaks, they often um, interact with other 
other phenomena and other processes that were already ongoing at the time of the the, the pandemic. Um, so climate change and technological advances for, for example. And, you know, I think we could certainly make an argument that, you know, COVID-19 has, has perhaps changed the world in, in several, several ways. And I think possibly the biggest way might be the way that we, the way that we view the world. Um, so first of all, you know, 20, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, academics could say with a serious, a serious face that we'd reached the end of history, that liberal democracy was the only reasonable way to, to organize our, uh, our politics and capitalism was the only sensible way to to organize economies and i think kind of you know if we look at certainly the examples of the the uk where you know boris johnson and the tories were pretty irresponsible with just trying to trying to slow the spread you know if we look at the us where donald trump just let the let the the disease rip we really see the the limitations of this this kind of liberal approach where personal freedom is is placed above anything anything else in 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 the priorities of of, of politicians and um, you know certainly I wouldn't I wouldn't want to look at somewhere like China as an example to follow but um, countries like New Zealand or Australia that took a much more much more kind of um, strict approach um, that did impose impose limitations on freedom also had kind of uh, a much better public health public health outcomes and you know we can we can kind of downplay the impact of of covid but it still killed an estimated 15 million people it threw the economy into absolute chaos for 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 for, for several years and you know we're still dealing with the fallout of that certainly in the uk right with with kind of inflation levels that haven't been seen since the the 1970s and the the kind of difficulties that, that causes for for people um so so yeah i think we still have to wait and wait and see as to the the impact um of covid and how transformative it actually actually is and i guess the other the other point is that it might not just be covid right we're living in a in an age where infectious diseases um can easily jump between um from one species to, to humans and and then can spread and cause devastation. And so it might be avian flu, for example, that causes a another another devastating outbreak in a year's time or several years' time. And you know, we're dealing with the uh, the cumulative effect of these of these outbreaks. So I think I think hopefully COVID was an aberration, but the the kind of skeptical side of me and um, my kind of understanding of public health suggests that it might well not be a one-off unfortunately yeah but it's interesting you you mentioned the politics there making a difference to how it's handled and that's obviously right but yeah that that, that sort of rather took me back to your comments on on uh, south america and infectious disease being much more important than technological advantage and it, yeah i'd have thought that as we look ahead, issues such as vaccines, microbial resistance, you know, these whole, all, all these issues relating to the spread of infectious diseases will be more important than, um, you know, than, than the politics. Well, I think, I think we have to, we have to remember that the politics and the technology can't be divorced from, from one another. Um, so just to take another example, if we look at who was affected by by COVID in the UK or the US, um, 
it wasn't kind of equal across social classes or even even kind of ethnic ethnic groups. It tended to be the case in the UK and US that people in poorer areas of the countries were were much worse affected, and also um, certain uh, minoritized groups were were affected much worse than 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 others. And so, again. In a way, and it was I think Richard Horton, um, the editor of the of the Lancet, who who said that actually COVID nineteen shouldn't be seen as a pandemic. It should be seen as what he refers to as a syndemic, a synergistic pandemic. So it was the virus on top of the pre existing pandemics of poverty and racism and obesity that that made it so much so much worse. So actually, if we lived in a society where we dealt with kind of poverty, racism, um, obesity much better, then we'd be in a in a much better state to to tackle the next the next crisis. Just, just one last thought: you've mentioned avian flu, and that may be the next thing around the corner. Is it the case? Do you think that population growth, uh, particularly perhaps in Africa, where uh, you've already uh, talked about that, that means there'll be more encroachment into areas that are currently occupied by wildlife and that that will increase the chances of uh, disease being transmitted from animals to humans and then spreading around the world. So are we going to see more of this? I think the likelihood is that um, that we will. Um, I think we, we're living in a golden age for, for microbes. Um, part of it is the, the encroachment on animal, animal habitats, also the the kind of growth in really intensive factory farming, which creates conditions that allow um, allow pathogens to to spread through the animal population and eventually jump to to humans. Um, as I mentioned, poverty is also a a massive a massive issue. And then, of course, we we have the perfect um, technologies for infectious diseases to spread quickly throughout the throughout the world. Um, it's easier than ever to to kind of um, jump on a plane and and travel vast vast distances um if we if we look back to the to the black death it took several years for for yersinia pestis to travel along the silk road and then via ships through the mediterranean and throughout throughout europe but um history's history's speeded up and you know with covid it was a matter of a matter of months and it will it will be the same if there's another airborne airborne pandemic. You've given us a lot to think about and uh, very grateful for uh, so much of your time. So thank you very much for talking us through these, uh, these fascinating issues. Thank you for your interest.